0: which makes me feel even better about my decision to be part of the ButcherBox community. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential: three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips, for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get twenty plus get twenty dollars off your first order. That's right. New users will receive their choice of 2 pounds of ground beef, 3 pounds of chicken thighs, or 1 pound of premium steak tips for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash Morning Cup and use code MORNINGCUP to choose your free offer and get $20 off. The new year is here, which means it's time to start new habits and make those yearly resolutions. Mine this year was to get healthier, and improve my quality of life. Which is why I want to talk to you guys about Noom. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, and don't take into account each person's individual needs, which in turn doesn't really set you up for success. Those workout plans you pull from the internet don't think about your individual dietary restrictions, medical issues, or other personal needs. Noom does all of that before building a tailor-made plan that works for you and your lifestyle. It doesn't try to restrict what you eat and never shames you for wanting to treat yourself. And unlike before, I feel the motivation I need to succeed and none of the frustration that came with other plans. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's n-o-o-m.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy wherever books are sold. There were two more murders, 15 miles away. When police at least arrived, arrived they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. Okay. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some cases will stick with you for the rest of your life. Cases that, while they may not have affected you personally, were seen on every TV station for months and left an imprint in the back of your mind that you cannot shake. On February 18th, 1985, a young man was born who would go on to commit a series of crimes that, to this day, many can't seem to forget. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Before his name became synonymous with terror and fear, Lee Boyd Malvo, born February 18th, 1985, was the son of a mason and a seamstress who moved around from places like Kingston to Endeavour to St. Martin, Antigua and Barbuda. A highly intelligent young man, Lee, who had skipped a number of grades due to his high performance, met a man named John Allen Muhammad while living in Antigua and Barbuda in 1999 and forged a strong and deadly friendship with the man. Later, John, using false documents, left Antigua for Fort Myers, Florida, and by 2001, Lee's mother left him in John's care. Soon, John converted Lee to Islam, and in December of 2001, Lee and his mother were apprehended by the Border Patrol in Bellingham, Washington, and placed behind bars. Lee was released in January of 2002, and back with John Muhammad, the pair lived in a homeless shelter in Washington, with Lee enrolling in Bellingham High School and John listed as his father. He made no friends, and John kept him isolated from his own mother. It was in Washington, Tacoma to be more exact, where Lee shoplifted a Bushmaster XM-15 and began practicing his marksmanship, despite the fact that, under federal law, neither he nor John were allowed to purchase or possess any guns. On February 16, 2002, 21-year-old Kenya Nicole Cook was shot and killed right outside her aunt's home in Tacoma, Washington. Washington an aunt who had been good friends with John Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred, and who encouraged her to seek a divorce. However, the trigger was not pulled by John, but rather his young companion. Just over a month later, 60-year-old Jerry Taylor was killed by a single shot to the chest, fired from a distance while standing on a golf course in Tucson, Arizona. John Muhammad's sister lived near the course, and he happened to be visiting her at the time of the shooting. On August 1st, 2002, in Hammond, Louisiana, 51 year old John Gaeta was changing a slashed tire when Lee Malvo, who was the one who slashed the tire to begin with, aimed his weapon and shot the man in the neck. John Gaeta laid perfectly still and pretended to be dead while Lee rummaged around for his wallet. When he was sure he was in the clear, John got up, blood seeping from his wounds, and ran to a service station where he was rushed to the hospital. He survived his injuries and later, on March 1st, 2010, would receive a letter of apology from Lee Malvo. On September 5, 2002, in Clinton, Maryland, 55-year-old pizzeria owner Paul LaRufa was shot six times at close range, but somehow managed to survive his attack. His laptop was later found in John Muhammad's vehicle. The shootings continued, and just 16 days after Paul was attacked, 41-year-old Million A. Woldemariam was shot in the head with a 22 caliber pistol while helping the owner of an Atlanta, Georgia package store close up for the night. 19 hours later, 52-year-old Montgomery, Alabama liquor store clerk, Claudine Parker, was shot in the chest and killed during a robbery while her 24-year-old co-worker, Kelly Adams, was shot through the neck, but managed to survive. Crucial evidence was collected at this crime scene that would end up connecting a series of completely unrelated crimes in October of 2002. In the meantime, the murders, which given their sporadic locations, seemed completely unconnected, continued to take place without rhyme or reason. On September 23, 2002, 45-year-old Hong I'm Ballinger, was shot in the head in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and became the last out-of-state murder committed by Lee Malvo and John Muhammad. That's because beginning on October 2nd, 2002, John Muhammad and Lee Malvo started committing a series of crimes called the Beltway Sniper Attacks that would earn them the moniker the DC Snipers. At around 5.20 p.m. on that day in October, a shot was fired through the window of a local Michael's store in Aspen Hill with a bullet narrowly missing cashier Ann Chapman. Since no one was injured, police soon wrote off the attempt as a random shooting and no serious alarm bells were rung. Yet, one hour later, 55-year-old program analyst at NOAA, James Martin, was shot and killed in the parking lot of a grocery store in Wheaton. And, less than 24 hours after the Michaels shooting, a series of attacks would take place that would end the lives of four people living in the Aspen Hill area and nearby Montgomery County, Maryland. Over the course of about two hours, 39-year-old landscaper James L. Buchanan was killed while mowing grass. 54-year-old part-time taxi driver Prem Kumar Walakar died while filling his cab at a gas station. 34-year-old babysitter and housekeeper Sarah Ramos was shot while sitting on a bench reading a book, and 25-year-old Lori Ann Lewis Rivera was killed while vacuuming out her car at a local Shell station. At around 9.20 p.m. on that same day, the snipers took the life of 72-year-old retired carpenter Pascal Charlotte, who was walking along Georgia Avenue in Washington, D.C. He died less than an hour after his initial attack. Each of these victims had one major thing in common. All were killed by a single bullet being fired from a distance away, and in each case, The killer, or killers, remained completely out of sight. It was at this point that fear started to spread throughout the area and police, for the first time, started to connect all of the shootings that had just taken place. As the media went into a complete frenzy, a press conference was held in which the chief of police for Montgomery County, Maryland, informed parents that schools were now on a code blue and that children would remain inside the building at all times as neighboring departments became involved in the investigation and tried to help with what very little evidence was being left behind at the scenes. While this was happening, John and Lee began working in a wider hunting ground and started spreading out the days between their attacks. On October 4th, 43-year-old homemaker, Caroline Sewell, was shot and wounded in the parking lot of a different Michael's store, and on October 7th, 13-year-old Iran Brown, the youngest of the sniper's victims, was shot in the chest and critically wounded while on his way to the Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Bowie, Maryland. His aunt, who was a nurse and had brought him to school that day, rushed him to the emergency room where he would not only survive his attack, but years later testify in the trials of the men who had shot him. At his crime scene, police got their first major piece of evidence in the sniper case. In addition to a spent shell casing, investigators were able to locate a tarot card, the death card, inscribed with the phrase, call me God, scrawled on the front, and, for you, Mr. Police, code, call me God, and do not release to the press, written on the back. Despite their attempts to honor the sniper's request, the press soon got hold of the tarot card information and made the morbid details available to the public. While police sorted through their information, at some point issuing the description of a white van or white box truck that witnesses placed at the scenes, 53-year-old civil engineer Dean Harold Myers was shot dead while pumping his gas in William County, Virginia on October 9th. And on October 11th, 53-year-old businessman Kenneth Bridges was shot doing the same in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. On October 14th, 47-year-old Linda Franklin, an FBI intelligence analyst, was shot dead in the covered parking lot of a Home Depot in Fairfax County, Virginia, and police received what they thought was a viable lead from a witness named Matthew Doughty, who, after police found out his statements were a lie, was convicted for interfering with the investigation. Fearful which gas station might be hit next, companies in D.C. and the surrounding areas started putting up tarps to protect their customers from view, which, at first, seemed to work as another shooting didn't take place for five days. Then, on October 19th, 37-year-old Jeffrey Hopper was shot in a parking lot in Ashland, Virginia, and, thanks to his wife's cries for help, was able to be taken to the hospital in enough time to survive his injuries. In a wooded area near the scene, police found a four-page letter from the shooter in which they demanded $10 million and threatened children as their next target. On October 21, 2002, the Richmond area police arrested two men whom they thought might be the snipers that they were looking for. In reality, they were two illegal immigrants with no connection to John Muhammad or Lee Malvo. They were remanded into federal custody and deported as a result. On October 22nd, 35-year-old bus driver Conrad Johnson was shot while standing on the steps of his bus in Aspen Hill, Maryland. On October 23rd, 2002, though there were no lives taken that day, ballistics experts confirmed that Conrad Johnson was, in fact, the the 10th fatality in the Beltway shootings and found shell casings in a yard in Tacoma, Washington that, in addition to some other pieces of evidence, Connected the crimes to one another. They were also able to find a tree stump that was believed to be used as target practice by the still unknown shooters. By this point, the DC sniper attacks were all anyone was talking about, and the deadly attacks were splashed across almost every single television station for the world to see with shows like America's Most Wanted devoting an entire episode to the shooters in hopes that someone somewhere knew who they were and would help by turning them in. Security was upped, people stayed home as much as possible, and almost everyone driving a white van or a box truck was seen as a potential suspect. Hotlines were created, tips flooded the lines, and the shooters attempted to engage the police in dialogue at a number of different scenes with a combination of tarot cards and some handwritten letters. Despite all of this, and the quick police response time to each of the scenes, the sniper's identity remained unknown. But while progress seemed to be at a standstill publicly, federal authorities were making significant headway behind the scenes thanks to a random phone call that came into their hotlines. At some point, the sniper, boasting about his cleverness, called over to the police and mentioned a previously unsolved murder in Montgomery, Alabama. Police soon realized that he meant the September 21st shooting in Alabama, and on October 17th, matched the fingerprints found at that scene and the one at Benjamin Tasker Middle School. These prints were then put into the system and connected to Lee Malvo's from his arrest in Washington State. Upon further research into Lee's background, police found that he had close ties with a man named John Allen Muhammad. With his name at the front of their minds, police began looking into his history and found that John's ex-wife, who had obtained a protective order against him, lived near the Capitol Beltway in Clinton, adjacent to Montgomery County, Maryland. They also found out that the New Jersey license plate number that was issued to John's 1990 Chevrolet Caprice, a car that had at one point been used as an undercover police car in Boardingtown, had been checked by radio patrol cars several times near the shooting locations in a number of different jurisdictions, but was never stopped by law enforcement because their computer networks did not indicate that it was involved in any criminal activity. And, at the time, they were focused on the idea that the killers were driving a white van. Quickly, they issued a media alert to the public to be on the lookout for a dark blue Chevrolet Caprice. It was found on October 24, 2002, at a rest stop near Myersville, Maryland, at around 3.15 a.m., with both John Muhammad and Lee Malvo fast asleep inside. The first to arrive at the scene was Trooper First Class D. Wayne Smith of the Maryland State Police, Who immediately used his unmarked police car to block off the exit of the truck stop while waiting for backup to arrive? The area was sealed off without the men noticing, and SWAT moved in to arrest the shooters. At the time, John Muhammad was 41 years old and Lee Malvo was just 17. Inside of John's car, in addition to the previously stated laptop, was the stolen Bushmaster and Bipod that, when tested by ballistics, was conclusively linked to 11 of the 14 shootings. The trunk of the Caprice had been modified to serve as a rolling sniper's nest, with the back seat moved in a way that would allow a person to access the trunk, lie down, and shoot out the back of the trunk through a hole near the license plate, which is how the men managed to remain completely undetected during their blatant attacks. During the pretrial motions, investigators and the prosecution suggested that John Muhammad intended to kill his ex-wife Mildred, whom he felt estranged him from his children, and that the other shootings were simply to cover up his real motive, attempting to make her seem like just a random victim of an unknown serial killer. While in prison, Lee wrote a number of diatribes about what he called a Jihad Against the United States. These rants were later deemed immaterial to his case, and investigators eliminated any terrorist ties or political motivations for the murders. Despite this, at at least one of his ensuing trials, a Virginia court found John Muhammad guilty of killing, quote, pursuant to the direction or order of terrorism. At John's 2006 trial, Lee testified that the motive for the murders was to kidnap children for the purpose of extorting money from the government. And to quote, set up a camp to train children how to terrorize cities, with the ultimate goal of shutting quote things down across the U.S. After a number of complicated pre-trials, trials, and legal battles, John Muhammad in September of 2003 was sentenced to death for his crimes. While Lee Malvo, who pleaded guilty to six murders, was sentenced to a total of six consecutive life sentences without parole in both Maryland and Virginia. During his testimony against John, Lee said that he lied during the Virginia trials when he took blame and named himself as the trigger man in the attacks. He said that he did so to protect his friend from a potential death sentence and wanted to help the families of the victims by telling the whole truth. He claimed the sniper attacks were part of a multi-phase plan created by John that consisted of meticulous planning, mapping, and practicing and saw at the completion of phase one was supposed to see the deaths of six white people a day over the course of 30 days. Phase one, according to Lee, did not go as planned due to the heavy traffic and lack of clear shot or getaway location. Phase two was meant to take place in Baltimore, Maryland, and though they were close to implementing it, never reached this phase of their plan. It would include the shooting of a pregnant woman, and the next phase was to include the murder of a Baltimore police officer and the ignition of various bombs during his funeral. The last phase was to extort several millions of dollars from the U.S. government, which they would use to finance a larger plan that would take place in Canada and involve the recruitment of various young boys from local YMCAs and orphanages who would be trained to start various mass shootings all over the country. On November 10th, 2009, John Allen Muhammad was put to death by lethal injection. In 2017, the U.S. Court of Appeals, following an appeal, vacated Lee's three consecutive life sentences in Virginia, on the grounds that a Supreme Court ruling had made mandatory life sentences without parole a violation of the Eighth Amendment for juveniles. This, however, did not apply to the life sentences he received back in Maryland. On February 25th, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court case was dismissed at the request of the lawyers on both sides. He will be eligible for parole consideration in Virginia this year, but the life sentences in Maryland were not affected. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on February 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it.